You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. I'll be reading various portions of it so you can follow along on the screen. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Jebeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now, behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard those words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Verse 15. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Chapter 12, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and grey, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Verse 7. Now therefore stand till still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hands of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they had cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of your, our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubel and Barak and 
Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and lived and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Thank you, Amanda. Is the mic working? Can you guys hear me? I am very relieved because there were some minor IT issues earlier, so it's my joy to have it working. Thanks to Remy and the team. Um, good afternoon, Redemption Hill Church. My name is Joseph. I'm a member of the third congregation, and it's my joy to see all of you um, today. So many familiar and beloved faces. You've come at the right time. We are about to open God's word together, God's precious word um, given to us, his people, for his glory and for our joy. Would you let me pray for us? Father, we come to you because you call us, you speak to us, you draw us by your word. So Lord, grant that the meditation of my heart, the words of my mouth, and the meditation of all of our hearts Grant that they might be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray this for the sake of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Welcome again, friends. We are in the midst of a series on the book of Samuel. And Samuel is a book of the Bible that has a lot to say about kings. Right? So in it, you see the people of Israel searching high and low for a king who will represent them, who will guard them, who will be faithful to them. And there are two main characters in today's passage, Samuel and Saul. If you're wondering where's David, he's the second king of Israel, so not his time yet. And Samuel is not a king, but he is a prophet. He is one who speaks the word of God to the people of God. And as we saw last week in chapter 10, he has just anointed Israel's first king, Saul. So a short recap of chapter 10, right? There Saul was announced as the king by Samuel. And the people shouted, long live the king. There was joy in the air. But 
if you listen closely and you wait as people start to go home, as the cheers die down, you hear something different. Verse 27, some worthless fellow said, how can this man, Saul, save us? And that's the tension that the coronation or crowning of Saul ended on last week. Can Saul save? It's an important question because reigning as king and saving are very closely associated. To be king is to save God's people. You see the verses on the slide. The king fights the people's battles. And Samuel told Saul just last week, when you reign, you shall save. Or you might wonder, why is there such a close tie between saving and reigning? A simple answer is that war is the reality of this time. The first time the nation meets David a few chapters down, he is proving himself in battle against Goliath. And so this is why the people of Israel assess Saul from the very start through this military lens. Can this man really save us? Their question is not theory, but it arises because there are real threats and real trouble at their door. And true enough, as Amanda read, the moment we begin chapter 11, their trouble is then Nehesh. So today we're going to see a short summary, right? First Samuel 11, Saul's first day at work, first day on the job, right? Tackling the military problem of Nehesh. And it ends in celebration, but in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel, the man who crowned Saul, has one last speech to make to all of Israel. He will locate the events of chapter 11 within a larger pattern. If you recall, um, church, a few weeks ago, Leonan took us through the danger of battles lost, right? Chapters 4 to 7. Today, we explore the danger of battles won. And we do that by this story structure, right? A problem, we'll see the problem, a pattern that Samuel will disclose, and then a promise, God's promise. So we begin with the problem. Day one on the job, there's still the tension of chapter 10 hanging in the air and trouble is at the door. And we see that despite the problem of Nahash, the Lord is able to save his weak people. We see this in three stages as trouble arrives, as Saul acts, and as the people accept him. So trouble arrives. Here's the problem. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Rebesh Gilead. So the city is under attack and it's time for the people to rally behind Saul, the new king, as he fights their battles. But what we actually find is surprising. First, the people live as if they had no king, as if chapter 10 uh, didn't happen at all. Right? Hear their immediate response. All the men of Jabesh Gilead said to Nehesh, verse 1, cut a, th- a treaty with us and we will serve you. We will serve you. Uh, what happened to long-lived King Saul? Right? And Nehesh has a reply for them. Verse 2, he says, I will cut a treaty with you. I will make a treaty if you cut out your right eyes. Uh, that's a really cruel and scary ask. Right? Dig out and give me your eye. Basically, he's saying your dignity or your death. You can't have both. Choose one. Why? Nehesh says in verse 3, I want to bring disgrace on all of Israel. The aim is the complete humiliation by the enemy of God's people. And when the leaders of the town come to him and they beg for seven days' grace, it only adds to their disgrace because Nehesh would love the extra sweetener of seeing all of Israel, knowing what is coming, and standing by helplessly watching. God's people disgraced. So the next verse, the people terrified went straight to King Saul. 
No, right? That's not what Amanda read earlier. In fact, the people do everything but go to Saul. Verse 1, they offer to serve Nehesh. Verse 3, when they send for help, you look at your Bible, they don't send straight for Saul, but they send messengers to all Israel, saying, if, if there is no one to save us, but isn't there someone? There's someone they just cheered for. We read on verse 4, when they get to Gibeah, which is Saul's hometown, still no one is thinking of Saul. The messengers sort of um, just tell the news into the ears of the people, a bit like your MRT broadcast, right? And Saul only finds out about Nahash when, by chance, he overhears weeping on the way home. So you would think that this King Saul would be the first to know, but actually he's more like the last to know. Do you see? No one regards Saul as king. It's a rough start to a new job. But when the camera finally gets to Saul, things go from bad to worse. Verse 5, Behold, Saul comes from the field behind the oxen. Now that's a bit strange, right? Why is Saul farming? Nothing wrong with farming, good food, good income, but Israel wanted a king to fight their battles. And yet he's here tending to the oxen, instead of tackling their enemies. In other words, he's not doing his job. He's passive. Just like last week when he knew it was his turn to be king, but he hid behind the baggage. And I think you begin to see uh, with me and with this passage why the people asked, can Saul really save us? So in these first five verses, we see trouble arrive in three ways. A powerful enemy, a people who live as if they have no king, and a king who is not like a king, right? So big enemy, um, no king, that's a big problem. But part two, Saul acts. And verse six of our passage where you see the tide turn, uh, I put a little question mark um, because you should notice how Saul is almost swept up into action. Okay, so this is how it starts. Verse six, the spirit of God rushed upon Saul as he heard the news. God is telling Saul, it's time to act. So verse 7, Saul springs into action. He sends a very strange and bloody summons to all Israel, show up and fight. And they do. They show up as one man, and Saul has his army. And verse 11 is about as good as day one on the job gets. Right? Saul arranges his army. He sort of advances them into the enemy camp. And the attack goes so well that what Nahash wanted to do to Israel gets done to his own soldiers. Right? No two of them were left together. So there's victory for Israel, and the problem is solved. Part three, the people now accept Saul. Trouble arrived, Saul acted, and now the people accept him. It's quite a good first day. We begin the chapter with the people weeping aloud, but if you remember verse 15, all of Israel is rejoicing. Better still, Saul's victory doesn't just resolve the trouble of chapter 11, but it actually stretches backwards to resolve that tension of chapter 10. If you recall the grumblers who were wondering, can this man save us? Well, they forgot to use their inside voice, right? So the people who heard those grumblers say, put them to death. They forgot that when the bad news came, no one was even thinking of Saul. Verse 13, but Saul says, Saul says, not one man shall die this day. Why? Because today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And as Saul shows mercy, the chapter closes well. In verse 15, Saul is finally accepted as king. All of the people celebrate. Can Saul save? 
Now that the huge problem of Nahash at their door is resolved, the people seem to think so. But here we pause Saul's story, we resume next week in chapter 13, and we see something far more important. For though Saul is the saviour that the people celebrate, do you see that it is the Lord who has worked salvation in Israel? It's his spirit that rushed upon and strengthened Saul, and Saul knows it, and he tells all Israel, it's the Lord, not me, who works salvation. Friends, there is someone who saves Israel from their enemies and from themselves. It's their faithful God. He's faithful though they fear, though they turn from him to serve Nahash. He's faithful to a passive farmer like Saul, sending his spirit. God is faithful to his people, and he is not done with saving them yet. We end chapter 11 neatly, but there's a little detail, I wonder if you noticed, that joins chapters 11 and 12. You may have noticed that Samuel, the spokesperson of God, was silent throughout this chapter until the end. And so it's noteworthy when that prophet of Israel, God's spokesperson, breaks the silence and says to the people, if you're following verse 14, come, let us go to Gilgal. Now why Gilgal? Every Israelite knew Gilgal because it was where Joshua, a previous leader, had built a memorial to help them remember that through the Exodus, the Lord had rolled away or removed the disgrace of Egypt and set them free when they were slaves. And now Samuel gathers them to this same place so that they will see the Lord has done it again. This time it was Nahash who threatened disgrace, but God rolled it away through Saul. The point of Samuel is simple. It's not the first time that God has rescued you from an impossible situation and removed your disgrace. Do you remember? Do you see how God saved our fathers out of Egypt and that same God in the same way is saving us today? Do you see? Don't let the thrill of this triumph make you think that you did it or that you're good on your own because it has always been God who saves. You have always been needy and God has always been faithful. And my new friends, this is a very bold message to bring into the middle of what is essentially a national party. Right? He's saying, you have always been needy. A strange, Samuel, why do you say that? But yet, it is a very timely message. I know it might seem strange, the military threat is past, even the tension has finally been resolved, right? the future looks bright. But Samuel is not ready to celebrate because he wants and he needs to remind the people of their need. He knew the danger that presents when battles are won, when our circumstances improve, when the threat is past. We can forget all the underlying issues that presented so clearly when we were in distress. Now think with me, right? In troubled times, don't you pray more? Or even become aware of bad choices or bad habits that led you there that need to go. And yet, the moment trouble lifts, you can begin to hear that voice saying, Oh, I'm okay now. I'm back to normal. And we just cruise to the next disaster. Friends, it's not wrong to celebrate. I love celebration. But here's the question Might relief and celebration when circumstances improve? cover up unaddressed issues that seemed so clear and urgent when you were in distress. You know, as a teenager, a younger man, my piety would always peak when, before exams, I would confess every wrong behavior, every rude uh, word to my mom in prayer to the Lord, and I would vow change. Right? But the moment the stress of exams lifted, 
And you know, as a husband, when work stress piles up and I am tired, I am more prone to quarrels with my wife, Joanne. I'm more prone to being less loving and less gentle. But if I sleep off that tiredness, if work stress lifts, there's a real temptation for me to act like I also slept off the underlying behaviors and issues and habits on my part that contributed to the quarrel in the first place when they're still there. They're still there. That's what Samuel is saying. They're still there. You really thought your greatest problem was Nahash? As they're celebrating that the external threat is gone, Samuel says, hey, stop. Look back and see that despite the victory, your behavior shows symptoms of a larger problem within you, not outside of you, within you, that chapter 12 will reveal. I just have a short word, Redemption Hill Church. I hope that we love each other enough to help each other do this, especially in times of joy or laughter when things are good. That's the hardest but maybe the best time to take a look at our own hearts, our patterns of behavior. And when we get together, ask each other honest and hard questions. Because if we don't love each other this way, when things get better, we may feel more at peace, or worse, we may look at peace to people watching, but we haven't actually dealt with anything inside. Circumstances just got better. Our joy is surface, it's superficial. And when the stress returns, what then? So in chapter 12, because of Samuel's love for Israel, he will call them to see that the events of the past week with Nahash actually plug into a long pattern of what Israel is like, the people, and what God is like. In chapter 11, right, God saves his people from the enemy, but in chapter 12, God will save his people from themselves. So verses 1 to 5 um, are Samuel's introduction, and I read, Samuel said to all Israel, verse 2, Behold, look, the king walks before you, and I am old and grey. Rephrase, my time with you is almost up. Verse 3, here I am, testify, tell me. You knew me from when I was young, when I was just Hannah's miracle baby, and now I am an old man. Tell me, what was I like? And the verdict from the people is clear in verses 4 and 5. Samuel has clean hands. He is the right messenger for the very difficult message to come. And so in verse 6, Samuel begins to tell their history from the Exodus all the way to the present day, and it's the same point that Gilgal makes. You must remember, you need to remember what you are like and what God is like. So there's actually a big pattern for that chunk of narrative, right, in verses 6 to 12 from Exodus to the present day. If you follow on the screen, they are oppressed in verse 8. They cry out. God hears them and he sends Moses and Aaron to deliver, and they are delivered and then at the last step, verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. And the pattern repeats up to verse 12. Samuel is saying, look, what happened in 11 when you forgot God is not a one-off, both on God's part and on your part. And you need to change. So first we look at God's part, right? He wants them to listen and remember the pattern of God's saving faithfulness. What happened when the Lord saved you from Nahash is not a one-off, but how God has always been toward you. Consider the length of his faithfulness. Our second song just now, Come Thou Found. We sang about Ebenezer. That is from chapter 7. It's a stone of remembering that tells the people, thus far or hitherto, the Lord has helped us. And here, Samuel is spelling out some details of that, thus far. All the way from Pharaoh, stretching far back, 
through enemy kings, all the names that Amanda read, all the way up to Nehesh, from the distant past of Egypt, their great-great-great-grandfathers, to just this week. It is a long history of God's faithful help. And as Samuel tells this story, right, he's locating God's salvation from Nahash within the longer pattern of saving to underline that God has been faithful, consistently faithful to them. God has been. And that's where the heartbreak lies. Because the length of God's faithfulness is also the length of their forgetting and turning. It's the same timeline. Same set of events in verses 6 to 12. And so Samuel turns to them and says, on your part, your pattern is not faithfulness but forgetting and turning. Do you see how you forget God? There is no sign in chapter 11 of anyone crying out to the Lord. You did not call to him. What a contrast from their earlier dependence in chapter 7 where the Philistines came up and the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord for us. I believe that was genuine, but in chapter 11, silence. Um, They forget so fast. They forget so fast. So Samuel knows that they were saved from Nahash, not because they remembered God, but because God remembered them. And in fact, he shows them that their forgetting is especially acute the moment they are saved. Okay, so here's the pattern. The moment that they are okay, they forget. Verse 8, they are saved. Verse 9, they forget God. Verse 11, God saved them out of the hand of the enemy on every side and they dwell safely. And verse 12, they tell God, uh, we would like a new king. Look with me at a long list of names in your Bible, right? At verse 11, it's a list of deliverers that God sends whenever the people cry out. And I read for us, Jerubal, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel. Why are there so many? Because each time a deliverer saves them, grows old, and dies, they forget God. One example on the screen, Judges chapter 8. As soon as Jerubal died, the people turn. As soon, they forget and they turn. And that too is their pattern of turning. If you remember with me, verse 2, right? The moment Nahash appeared, what happened? The man of Jabesh Gilead turned from God and Saul and offered to serve Nahash. And Samuel is saying, actually what you did it's not new. In verse 10, having forgotten the Lord, your fathers also turned to serve the Baal and the Ashtaroth, the gods of the nations around them, who promised fertility of crops and of children. Even verse 12, right, their choice of Saul as king was a decision to turn, where they told God, not you, um, thank you, but we would like another king to reign over us. Friends, Samuel displays the persistent pattern to forget and to turn. And this is why God must send Samuel to speak amidst the festivity because he knows where their forgetting will lead. When Israel is satisfied and rejoicing that Nahash is dealt with, God sends Samuel to plead with them. There is a deeper problem. Your sin of forgetting and turning from God. Don't let the celebration cover that up. Do you see? Even as they turn from God and ask for a different king, God is in pursuit of his people, telling them over and over, you've been here before. If you don't see the pattern of your ways, you will celebrate and you will eat and drink your way into another disaster. You must see it. Do you you see it? Do you remember? But why do they forget and turn in the first place? Samuel gives us two reasons. One, they forget God because they forget 
they are dead to grace. Two, they turn because they forget that they were made to serve God. So first, right, they forget God because they forget their indebtedness to grace. Now on the screen, there's a table. In chapters 8 to 12, four references to the event of the Exodus. One in chapter 8 and 10, each time kingship is mentioned, the Lord says, I brought them out of Egypt. And two times in chapter 12 that we've just read, the Lord brought your fathers out. The Lord brought them out. The Lord brought them up. God is reminding Israel that their life as a nation began when God brought them out. You see, in Egypt, they were slaves. They had no path to freedom or life. So their life now as free individuals and as a nation making demands of God. From day one, that was a gift. It was not a given. They were brought out and now they tell God, we want another king. They've forgotten their debt to grace. And friends, what Exodus says to Israel is what scripture, God's word, says to all of us. Your life and my life is not a given but God's gift to us from the start and each day since. It's not just that God saves us when we cry to him in distress, but that he gives us life itself. And I speak to the Christians in this room. When we don't dwell on this truth, we confess that God is our maker, but functionally, we might think of him or relate to him more like an emergency helpline. Right? We don't cherish our dependence on God. We resent when we have to call to him. Or consider God's law. Um, often when we think of God's rules, we think of it as about us, God's command to us. When first, God's law is about God. Because in it, God speaks to reveal and give himself to us, saying, this is what I'm like. This is my character. And as we listen to him, we learn the good shape of human life. We image God. But if we forget that God is the good creator, then God's commands no longer feel like him coming to us, giving himself to us as our guide. They feel like God at a long distance, um, sort of controlling us like a puppet master, and we run out. That's what Israel has become like. God gives them life, and he gives them his law, that they might know him and have a relationship with him. Yet, they are content with just his rescue. Do you ever want the maximum distance from God? Yet you keep him near enough so that when you're in trouble, when help is needed, you can press the bell and call for him. Samuel reminds Israel and he reminds us today, that's not how we were meant to live. And secondly, when we forget that God is that giver of all life, then we forget that you and I were made for him to serve him. If life is from God, right, then logically he tells us how to live it good. But the moment we begin to lose sight of the good God that stands behind the commands, then they begin to feel hostile, like something from which we have to escape. I don't know about you, but do you ever not feel thankful to God for his commands, but instead you tend in your heart to feel more trapped? You struggle to believe that they are good, that they give you life. In your heart, you feel like, I would like out of the laws of God. I would like out of serving God. And Samuel, in telling this story, asked them with sorrow, when you stop serving God, are you really free? People of Israel, each time you turned from God, didn't you still find yourself serving a different master? Maybe Nahash, maybe Saul, maybe the idols of the nations. And Bob Dylan said this well in his song. 
He said, you may serve the devil or you may serve the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Freedom from God will not free you from serving. It's never whether or not you will serve, but who you will serve. That's his message. Israel has to hear it. And I hope that as we hear it, we don't sit in judgment on them. Because have you ever wished that the Bible had less commands about your time, your money, your life? If you like, I should decide how to spend it. Friends, let scripture remind us today that when we turn from, when we stop serving God, we don't stop serving, we just serve a different master with a new set of commands, right? It can prayed for us earlier. It could be your work that controls your time and your thought that always needs you to prove your worth. And you can leave the office, uh, tap out, take the bus home, get to your home, and work follows you home. It never leaves you. It could be beauty. Right? I want my hair to last forever. I want my skin to be wrinkle-free, my waistline to be a certain way. And I know that sounds a bit funny, but don't you and I know people and I mean this, who can be consumed by thoughts about their appearance. They look fine when they're at church, but when they go home, if beauty is your master, it is a cruel master. Even family. I love my family. But when made into a master, family has its own set of oppressive commands. I think some of you know this, whether because you were children or because you are parents. It will say, do this, feed your child this way, get into this school, right? raise your child this way, or else your child is doomed. Not just, not just falling behind, but doomed, ruined. The stakes are always rising, and the anxious rules will pile up without end. So Samuel asked them, are you really free when you stop serving God? So this is the pattern that Samuel sketches. Right? Two patterns. God has been persistently faithful, and Israel has persistently forgotten God and turned to serve other masters. And now our question is, what then? Right, two patterns, do they just go on forever so the people forget and then God saves and then the people forget and then God saves? No. Samuel has a serious warning. Here's his last effort at trying to break that pattern. If you follow me to verse 14, first he offers advice, four to-dos, fear, serve God, obey God, and don't rebel. This is God's world, essentially. Walk in his ways, and it will be well with you. Advice. Secondly, verse 15, Samuel offers warning. He says, if you keep turning from God and going your own way, you will run up against his hand, which is his power or his might. And friends, it is one thing to be in the hand of Pharaoh or of enemy kings, because even there, the Lord has saved them. But if they find themselves in the Lord's hand, who will save them then? And Samuel illustrates this for them in the successive verses by calling down a thunderstorm during wheat harvest, which is their dry season. Right? A bit hard for us to understand. We have one season, but it's like, it's like if you saw snow in summertime. Right? And Samuel does this not to play, but to remind the people of two things. One, all that you have, even the sunshine and the rain that grow your crops, the dependable seasons, these are God's gifts. One. But two, if you persist in turning from the giver of life, there is only one outcome. Verse 25 spells it out. You will be swept away, you and your king, if you continue turning against God's hand. What a wake-up call to Israel. Or to us in this room who call ourselves Christians. God is crystal clear through Samuel that his justice is not just for some, 
but for all. Evil and rebellion are not spared, even among God's own people. And they seem to get it, right? Israel seems to get it in verse 19. Look with me. They cry out to God through Samuel, pray for us that we may not die. They cry out to God. And then Samuel's speech concludes. And friends, when I read this, it really moved me because despite the years of dealing with a stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted, rebellious people, Samuel doesn't just drop the advice and then go like a mailman. But look at verse 23. He says, I will not cease to pray for you and I will instruct you in the good way and the right way. Old as he is, Samuel promises himself to them, pledges for however many years he has left. Right, he's saying, while I still have breath and it may not be long, but while I have it, I will pray for you and I will not stop reminding you of the good and right way. I wish for all of us, Samuels in our lives, to pray for and remind us that there is a good and right way that wisdom and maturity take. And that way is paved by God's words, by his commands, which guard us from forgetting and guard us from turning. But friends, do you notice that in verse 19, even as the people admit their evil, they don't say something. They don't say, take this king from us. They don't. Do you notice? There's no returning to God. All they ask is pray for us that we may not die. It's not right what we are doing, but Samuel, if you don't mind, we kind of like to keep that king that we ask for, please. They struggle to believe that there is any good for them without their idols. Just as the people knew Samuel well, I think Samuel knew his people well too. He was going to try till he died, but that would not be enough. All the good advice in the world, totaled up, given to them, would not be enough to change their pattern of forgetting and turning. I wonder if you know this, right? A lot of us have been in church for years. Wise instruction on its own does not save. It's wise, it's good, it's needed, it's precious, but it does not save. You can give me advice and still I am powerless to end the patterns of sin that hurt me, hurt people I love. Despite having the best advice, do you ever feel, I I know what I should do, but I can't do it. I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I can't stop. What then? The Bible tells us that we need more than advice. What we need is help. And there's a little nugget tucked in the end of Samuel's goodbye. And it's worth more than all the instruction that Samuel gives, not because it cancels the instruction out, but because that nugget is the door to obeying that instruction from the heart. Friends, here is the hope for a people who persistently forget and turn. We saw the, pat- the problem, we saw the pattern. Now hear the promise that God makes. Verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The Lord will not forsake his people. God will not let go, though the people push him away and turn from him. Why? For his great name's sake. I know this may sound foreign, but some of you may actually have memorized it. He guides me in paths of righteousness, for his name's sake. Right? Psalm 23, what does it mean? The people of Israel would immediately, upon hearing those words, think of Exodus 34, where God tells Moses his name. 
the beating heart of who he is. The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger but abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. When you hear these words, you are to think of God because this is who he is, this is what he's like, this is his name. And that's the promise. God will not forsake them because that's what he's like. God does not let go, not because the people of Israel are so good and so deserving, but because that's what God is like. He keeps steadfast love, steady love, a loyal love, not wavering love and faithfulness. Yet he will by no means clear the guilty. He is not like Samuel's sons in chapter 12, verse 3, who can be bribed. Guilt will be punished. How? How does God keep steadfast love to a people and yet not clear the guilty? How do you square this promise of love to a people who turn? The 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verse 6, reads like this. All we like sheep have turned, each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As I was preparing and this verse came to mind, it, it bowled me over, it caught me off guard. If you are new to church, first time here today, I wonder if you feel like raising your hand and saying, no, Joseph, it doesn't make sense. You just explained to me and I can understand. Verse 15, those who don't obey and turn and rebel, their guilt will be punished by God's own hand. And you told me that they have this pattern of forgetting and turning. You told me, you took me through Samuel's speech and you showed me a people whose nature it is to turn, whose habit is to turn, whose pattern is to turn to the very end when they hold on to their king. So tell me this, Joseph. If they have turned, why is the punishment laid on him? It should be on them. If I have turned, then that punishment should be laid on me. It should. Yet at the cross, Jesus Christ, who did not turn but set his face like flint, shows us how the justice of God and the faithful love of God meet. He will by no means clear the guilty because the Son of God steps down and takes the place of sinners like you and me. And the Lord lays on him the iniquity, the turning of us all at the cross. That is what it looks like for a sinner to be caught up in God's promise. Isn't that why we sang, He took my sin and my sorrows. He made them His very own. He bore the burden to Calvary. My burden. We who turn and cut ourselves off from the source of life, and then we ask, why are we dying? We find that God's own Son has overtaken us and has found us in our turning with His love. He found us. He moved towards us so that what breaks the pattern finally is not what we have done, but what he has done for us. Friends, I'm not saying that Israel didn't have hard hearts, hearts of steel and stone, but I'm saying that this kind of love can break even a heart of stone. Do you hear what God says to you today? That the weight and the weariness of all your sin was laid fully on Christ Jesus by God for you and for me. 
And I don't know many of you today, right? maybe you ask, um, is this for me? Maybe it's for people who are mostly good and need some improvement. Maybe it's for people who are here. If I'm gone next week, no one would miss me. In the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus tells this story. He says, there were 90 and 9 sheep that safely lay in the shelter of the fold, but one was out on the hills away, away from the tender shepherd's care. Lord, you have 90 and 9 sheep. Are they not enough for you? But a shepherd answered, this one of mine has wandered away from me. And though the road be rough and steep, I go to the desert to find my sheep. Friends, remembering this story moved me, not because I'm thinking of you, I'm thinking of me. I am the lost sheep that Jesus loved. And he found me not because my sin is small and easy to save, but because his love is that big. And it's in the light of that love that we ask today, how shall we then live? Two points. First, I hope you see that God has come to deal with you and me in a deep way. If today you're like Israel at the end of chapter 11, rejoicing, it's Christmas, all looks well on the surface, but in your heart, there are unaddressed issues. God sees that. God interrupts Israel's celebration through Samuel to show them their true problem, the pattern of sin, and to show them his promise. I wonder if God is interrupting your celebration this year, especially again at Christmas time. We are less than a month out. It's easy to come to church looking bright and cheery. Don't go into Christmas with cheap and thin joy. If on the surface, things look well with you, but inside, you come to church and you know you're a mess. And I know some of you are there because I've sat and I've talked with you and I've cried with you. And I want you to hear God's promise. Jesus is not the prince of the appearance of peace, but the prince of peace. He wants to give deep and real peace to your heart by bringing your hidden patterns of sin to light and putting an end to them. And if I don't know you, maybe you hear this and you think, Joseph, you don't know me. You don't know how long it's been for me in this pattern of sin. You don't know how many sermons I've heard from this pulpit about change. And you're right, I don't. But God knows. It's God who calls to you by his word. He saw Israel through years of turning and he will see you through. That's what his word says, his faithful word, you can believe. So come to him. I just want to say, if God is speaking to you, and whether you believe in him or not, uh, we do. And we love to come and pray with you. So come on up afterwards. If you would like prayer for this, right, we'll be here. But lastly, I want to say that as God breaks our stubborn patterns, we can really obey his law. Church, do you know that? As God heals our heart, our hands can really obey. And I know that your sin will say to you, I was here yesterday, I'm still here today as you hear this sermon, and I will be here tomorrow. Says Joseph, you don't keep your promises. You still get angry. Your words cut the people that you love. There's stuff in your heart that no one knows about. You really think you will change? But alongside that bitter voice, we hear another voice. Samuel prayed for Israel. But the one who prays for you and me is the Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. I know Samuel did his best, but Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the end, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. Samuel did his best, but he grew old. But Jesus always lives. Samuel prayed as long as he could, but the prayers of Jesus know no end. Samuel saved the people of Israel for a time. 
But Jesus is able to save to the very end. Hmm. Is there still darkness in you? You can come to Jesus in whom there is no darkness at all. Have you turned? You can come to the one in whom there is no shadow of turning because he prays for you this day. Friends, in the end, we rest all of our efforts at obedience in this knowledge. Our journey home is long. There are many stumbles, but he knows how we stumble and hurt. So each week, we come on Sunday and we open this book to each other and we hear the words of God, our Father, to frighten children. The Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Would you let me pray for us? Our Father, great is your faithfulness. There is no shadow of turning in you. Our love is often cold. Our joy still ebbs and flows. But Father, you remain faithful. So today, whatever the condition of our hearts, whatever sin may speak to us with its bitter voice, we ask that we hear the voice of Christ our Saviour who says that when we most think we are unlovable, he pours out the love from his great heart to us. So we may live, so we may obey, so we may know him and love him and love each other for our joy and for God's glory. We never knew a Saviour like Jesus Christ. How we love our Lord. We thank you for him. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.